This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer, and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what is music? Does nature around us, the birds, the trees, make music? What is music supposed to do? I had never thought of these questions and I didn't even plan on asking them until I spoke with my guest today, composer Alexander Lieberman. These transcriptions just also that they are able to bring up those questions is the most important thing, I believe. You know, that's... Yeah. Um, you start thinking about what is music and you know i've i i see those comments that i receive sometimes and it's really about that like so many have written this is like contemporary music mm-hmm. like the contemporary music and i'm like, like yeah is it is it the mm-hmm. same you know as i said before you probably don't really like that as much so the contemporary music mm-hmm. as the bird songs but what's the real difference you know Alexander is an award-winning composer, arranger and educator who trained at Music Hochschule Hans Eisler in Berlin, at New York's Juilliard and is currently doing his doctorate at the Manhattan School of Music. Alexander's work is wide-ranging. He writes for ensembles, choral music, orchestras, solo instruments, film scores and how I discovered him transcribing animal sounds. More of that in a moment, but to read Alexander's full bio, head to the link in the podcast blurb. I have written songs before, but most of the time the the text guides you, right? The right. text is um, the most important thing or, um, yeah, you cannot, you cannot have the words, you know, peaceful plane or tree and then write like smashing chords or have yeah. a person scream. 
Back to how I discovered Alexander's work. It was on Instagram, a video of a bird singing with notes written underneath. It blew my mind. Because to transcribe sounds that to the human ear don't follow a pattern or a melodic line, or sometimes sounds that aren't actual notes but noises, is really hard to do. I'm a visual learner, so seeing something written down got me thinking about the natural world in a new way. If I'm learning a piece of classical music, for example, I have the music in front of me and I learn how it sounds, if you like, by seeing it written down. With the animal song, the opposite is happening. I'm seeing something written down that I've already heard. I'm not fully sure what this difference means yet or its significance, but what I do know is that Alexander's work has caused me to ask questions, questions that I'd never previously really given much thought. For example, are animals sounds music? Is birdsong music? How do we distinguish between noise and melody? Who decides what music is or isn't? Do we even need to ask these questions in the first place? In the beginning, it was just fun. Mm-hmm. You know, like just fun doing it. But slowly I saw also that um, I learned a lot from it. Wow. Like I learned a lot, lot, lot from it. And uh, it inspires me a lot from my own works. So, um, you know, I research a lot about those animals too. When I do that, I read scientific articles about the sound they do, they make, uh, what's known out there. Mm. and. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, you know. We talk about Alexander's childhood raised in a household of musicians, his composition process. We talk about why a lot of his work centres around nature and climate change, but that he always desires to convey a hopeful message. That in fact, hope and positivity can be more effective tools to engage people rather than fear and cynicism. But sometimes even in art and uh, the topic is very dark and it ends on a very sad note or horrible, you know, and that I, I don't know, I try to make it a little bit more optimistic. Yeah. I mean, there are studies who prove that children learn much better when they laugh, you know, and um, maybe we should all just learn from that too. We talk about how multifaceted art and the artist is. As Alexander says, and I love this line, I quote, critique is very easy, but art is difficult. My conversation with Alexander wasn't about finding or establishing answers. For me, it was, and why I love doing this podcast, about someone creating work that caused me to consider the world around me in a new way. And as this series is about creative ways to bring about social change, Is it possible to do so in joyful and unburdened ways, in ways that inspire fascination and curiosity? I think Alexander has inadvertently done that. Isn't that what art can do? Bypass the mind and go straight to the heart. Alexander Lieberman, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I actually discovered your work via the on Instagram, actually, because of Dust to Digital. Yeah. And yeah, and I was just amazed. So because you transcribe amongst the many things you do, you transcribe nature and animals and it's it's incredible. Um, but you are a composer. It, it's so interesting. Um, I've been reading, you know, f- researching for this, just you really do compose for everything orchestras, chamber music, film, vocals, guitar, woodwind. I mean, you name it, you you do it all. You have a bachelor's in music from 
for, that you got in Berlin. You have a master's of music at Juilliard and you're doing a PhD at the Manhattan School of Music. Yeah, a DMA, a Doctor of Musical Arts. Okay, fantastic. And and is are you uh, are you specializing in something particular? Well, I'm researching, I'm writing my thesis about Schuhoff. So a composer I like a lot. He was, um, yeah, so at the turn of the century from, you know, 19th, uh, 20th century. And um, he was Czech and extremely talented, versatile, prolific. And nobody knows a lot about his work, sadly. Um, yeah, so he didn't have an easy path to because of, you know, um, the rise of the Nazis in Germany and so forth, actually, that got him killed. And, um, but yeah, so he's, he's a great composer. I love what he does. So yeah, that's what Fantastic. I'm researching. Oh, well, I, I mean, I've never heard of him. But yeah, Erwin Schuhoff. Erwin, well, I look, when, you're, when your PhD is finished, we'll, we'll have a look at it. <laughs> How far into it are you? Well, um, I mean, for my, my doctorals, there's only the thesis left. So um, I have researched everything, but I mean, it's never finished, mm -hmm. right? The research is never really finished, mm. but um, I've started writing, I guess I'm at like 30%. Okay. Well, good, good luck for the rest. Good luck for the rest. <laughs> but um, let's start from the very beginning, how you got into music. It's really interesting because it seems like your whole family's into music. Cause I noticed on Instagram, your brothers are also musicians. Yes. My two brothers are musicians. Right. So I'm the eldest of three and uh -huh. the middle one plays cello and the youngest one plays saxophone. Fantastic. So, so tell me how, let's start. I always like to ask people how they got started. So how did you get into music? What were you playing as a, as a kid? What were you, what were you doing? What were you listening to? Well, um, I was two years old when I started playing the violin. Um, right. I mostly wanted to play because my father is a violinist. Okay. Um, yeah. So there are some anecdotes. Parents always tell me that as a, as a kid, I wanted to go to Japan like my father because he was traveling Japan because of, you know, he's, he played there a lot. So I wanted to go there too. So I picked up the violin. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, yeah. And then I played until I was 16, 17, mm -hmm. the violin. It wasn't really my, my passion though, but around 16, 15, I also like um, got into composing a lot. And mostly right. because of um, film music. Right. So tell me about that. You were listening, you were watching a lot of films or you were... So yeah, talk to me about that. Yeah. So, you know, all the movies with the scores of John Williams, mm -hmm. um, also the these the movies with the soundtracks of Ennio Morricone. Yeah. And so that really fascinated me. So mm -hmm. that's my earliest memory I have when I started writing my own things so it's really after watching movies and I kind of wanted to imitate or do the same thing and yeah right well it's so I mean both Ennio Morricone and John Williams they they have these very big orchestral rooted in classical music grand oh yeah yeah I mean yeah? they are only two out of many so mm -hmm. James Horner Alan Silvestri Danny Elfman all of those really mm -hmm. like um, fascinated me, the music. But I mean, I played in a youth orchestra too. And so I was playing, uh, you know, the classical repertoire too. And uh, I mean, I played the violin. I heard the violin at home. I went to concerts a lot because my father's an orchestra, a uh, member of an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah. 
Okay. It's deeply rooted in that yeah. classical music world as well. Amazing. So then you, you study in Berlin and then you end up at Juilliard. What are you doing at Juilliard? I did my uh, master's at Juilliard and um, I absolutely wanted to study with Samuel Adler, who mm -hmm. is, um, he's very, I mean, he's well known for the orchestration book that he wrote. So I had this book before even knowing him. So, mm -hmm. and I spent hours and hours reading that book. So, and uh, I met him in Berlin. And, you know, uh, he had always this kind of summer classes he was doing in, in Berlin. And mm -hmm. I met him in 2007, I remember, at the Berlin Philharmonic. And I was so nervous, I remember. And then he super kindly invited me as a guest auditor to this summer, uh, to this summer class he was doing. And so years after years, he invited me back so that I could just listen once a week to the mm -hmm. composers and And one day I showed him what I, what I composed and he said, you should apply to Juilliard. And then I was just like, okay. Um, I remember that feeling. I was so proud and uh, yeah, that's what I did. And that's how I ended up in the States. be really interested to to talk about your composition process because I was looking at your stuff and I'm, I was thinking this guy knows how to write for everything and which is really difficult <laughs> so um so you do stuff for like for example you have a beautiful beautiful piece called you're gonna have to tell me if I pronounce it right Di Poeta yeah Di yeah Poeta. That's all. Um, that's that was commissioned by I think was it the New York Virtuoso Choir Singers. Singers. That's it. And that's based on a poem, a German poem from the seven from seven ninety. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's the oldest known text of High German. Right. And so, what's High German for those? Uh, Hochdeutsch. So it's 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 the German we speak today. So, right. Yeah. Okay. And um. Yeah, so that's the oldest record, and it's fascinating. It's um, you know, when you look at this, you really see the similitudes, the similarities with English and with other uh, languages that are you know rooted or have the roots in German. For example, everything that is double W that has mm -hmm. a W in the beginning, like wisdom, yeah, um, is actually spelled with two U's. Right. That's right. So you have a lot of those uh, similarities. And ever if you ever wondered why you say W, now you have your answer. Oh, that's nuts. <laughs> you know, I never thought of that. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because, of yeah. course, our English is a, you know, Roman Germanic language. It, it has its roots in German. And a lot of the time, I mean, I should say I have German family and I studied German at school. I can't, I mean, I only know like, Wie komme ich am besten zum Bahnhof? You know, like... Well, that's very important. <laughs> yeah, where's the train station? Like, nothing that's, like, useful in, in life, life. But one thing I did notice is that um, German words, your nouns are descriptive. Mm. They're almost, like, adjectival. So, like, a hospital is a Krankenhaus, a place where... Yeah, yeah, a yeah. house for sick people. Um, which, I, whereas English, our nouns aren't the same, but it makes sense because are the English that we know is rooted in German. 
Yeah. So a lot of those words actually come from them. And it's really fascinating. So when you read it, you don't really understand anything, but when you look at specific words, you'll be like, Uh well, that sounds familiar. So like Uh wisdom, right? Wisdom with two U's or um, yeah, there are other examples with W's. It's it's really, really interesting. So gosh. Yeah. So I wrote a piece using that text. I mean, it's, it's a fantasy, uh, you know, it's a um, fantasy-like piece. I didn't try to imitate the any kinds of musical genres from the time or mm-hmm. something like that. But yeah, so. So writing choral music, because that's a specific, that's very different to say writing for string instruments or, or wind instruments. Are you, do you sort of, I'm just trying to imagine, take me through the process of writing something like that. Are you... Do you have the singers in your in your mind? Are you listening to the, the the are you imagining a melody and then you're writing the melody down? Or are you do you have the words first? I mean, like how do you how do you do it? Yeah, so it's very different when you write for like just instrumental works or if you write for a voice. Um I have written songs before, but most of the time the the text guides you, right? The right. text is um the most important thing or um yeah, you cannot you cannot have the words you know peaceful plane or tree and then write like smashing chords or have yeah. the person scream. Um, so yeah, you know I look at the text. I saw the different parts mm-hmm. and um, the structure of the of the texts, and accordingly, I had my different sections, musical sections, and. Yeah, the rest is just how the, you know the the mood, the atmosphere, the um, yeah, the the general um, atmosphere mm-hmm. that I kind of had, and then I either improvise on the piano and get some ideas, or I have some some kind of gestures in my mm-hmm. head, you know, that mm-hmm. moving along. So, in the end of the piece, there's a moment where they all say "Tiefflum" in this old German, which means like devil like Teufel in German, okay, very close yeah. to. And um, there I really want them all to sing it up and have this line downward, this glissando down. So that's what I ended up doing. Um, right. So sometimes these are gestures that I have in mind, moods, um, colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. And then you have like, and are you using like Sibelius? Is that what you write from the... no. No, okay. no, I use I'm a finale kind of person. Okay, I don't, I don't, to be honest, I mean, when I do composition, I still um, do everything by hand, like <laughs> with a pencil of, yeah. Yeah, me, so, me too. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, I sketch, um, you know, when I'm at the piano, I sketch on, on stuff paper and uh, I, the last process, like engraving, is really using finale or so forth. Okay. And so you you play violin and you play the piano. Yeah, you- so I'm not a concert pianist by any means, but uh, I when I was 15, 16, when I started composing, and when you want to enter a university here in Germany, um, you have to play the piano for composition. Right. So, yeah, I practiced a lot, lot, okay. lots. Yeah, no, I never... I never catched up, but I never could play like a person who started when they're like four or five. Yeah. But... um. Yeah, it's enough to play some Schumann, you know, some Chopin. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
okay. And then, and then you also like you have something that you wrote with your, or I don't know if you for your brother, but your brother's playing on it, the cello and piano sonata, which yeah. of course has a different feel. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to him play the cello, and his, I mean, his cello playing is so beautiful. It always makes me want to weep. That's why I think cello always make. It's kind of a melancholy instrument. I I never think of it as like a happy instrument. It's so melancholy, but he has this tone that is really like yearning. That's the only way I can describe it. And he wrote this beautiful piece that you play together. And obviously that has a different feel. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, so the sonata was written, um, oh my God, it's been like, what, in 2016, 15? So it's five years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, it was commissioned um, by the Avalon Music Concerts in Sweden. Yes, so, you know, when I write for... Uh, instrumental works or now specifically a cello sonata or works that involve a solo instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, I always imagine a person playing it too. I think right. that helps a lot uh, when you write, um, you know, you kind of see the person moving, you kind of see the, mm. so that piece was not written specifically for my brother. I remember it was written for the person who commissioned it, but mm-hmm. um, you know, since I, I grew up with my brother and I heard him play all the time too. It always was there too in my head, you know, imagining him or, or my friend playing the sonata. And um, yeah, I, it's the first time in a long time that I played with my brother again. And uh, he understood the music right away, which I think is very uh, interesting too. You know, we both sat together, he practiced it for a bit and then it went smoothly. Like, so you, I guess if you grew up in a household with musicians, you're all, were you, were you guys the kind of people like who were always playing together and, and playing things, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, my, my two younger brothers have a band together, so they play yes. a lot, lot, lot together. Um, then I moved to the States. So obviously I kind of, I didn't do that for, <laughs> for a while. Um, but yeah, we used to play a lot together. A lot together. Um, I played duos with my father. Um, he taught me too for a bit. Um, we played arrangements, all the four of us. I played with my two brothers. I played with my saxophone brother. I played with my, yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. I love it. And then, okay, so I, I really want to talk to you about the stuff that you do with um, transcribing animal sounds. I, I've been thinking about this a lot because, so I should say the the overarching theme of this season of the podcast is the way arts can be used to affect social change in some way. And um, there is a, a scientist, um, and I think they call him a scientist or a soundscape ecologist called Bernie Krauss. I don't know if you've ever heard of Bernie Krauss. 
So he records the sounds of nature. And I discovered his work a really, really long time ago. He was with, I've forgotten the name, George somebody, the guy that... um, that played George Martin, the guy that uh, was the Beatles producer. And they did this documentary series, but he he did this recording of tree cells when they're dry, but they absorb water really quickly. The cells sound like they're exploding. And then he slowed it down for, uh, you know, for human hearing. And it is this, it is this beautiful, complex percussion. That's basically what it sounds like. It's, it, it, it's incredible. And I remembered it like it's something that never left me. And his idea was that when you, part of recording nature is about us connecting with the world around us, that we're not removed from it. And, um, and it's something, for example, that First Nation people understand really well, like Native Americans, they really understand the earth, the nature, you know, they're really connected with it. And so when I was looking at you, uh, your stuff where you transcribe seals and whale song and penguin song, and I don't, I want to first ask you how on earth do you write it? Because it's so complicated. But the thing that struck me, I'm, I'm sort of going around the houses and what I'm saying is that for me, music is about knowing how to hear, knowing how to listen. Like, I think principally, for me anyway. And um, when I listen to what what you have done and what you've written down, I think, gosh, Alexander really knows how to listen. Because I don't know how you... So talk me through how you got into this first and foremost, and then how you do it. Yeah, so, um, um, I mean, this entire series started uh, exactly one year ago, actually. during the lockdown here in Berlin. So I left New York, I arrived in Berlin and lockdown isn't the most fun experience. So, you know, uh, I stumbled upon videos um, with animals. Uh, I remember the first one was like a dog howling at the piano. And I thought, wow, that's funny. Um, The dog tries to match the pitches he's actually playing on the piano. So I thought, you know, why don't I write this down to see exactly what's happening? and then I, I saw a humpback whale and I was just like so amazed by this, you know, by these sounds that I presumably knew, but that I listened in a very different way suddenly. Um, I guess because I was in lockdown and suddenly it made me realize, wow, these animals are out there, you know, <laughs> and uh, singing. Um, so that's for the series. But, you know, um, I kind of grew up in South of France too and okay. outside of Nice. And we had, you know, I grew up next to cicadas there as well. And um, lots of animals, lots of, lots of birds, lots of, um, lots of insects. Um, uh, yeah, geckos, all sorts of creatures from the mountain too. Mm-hmm. And um, I transcribed like a cicada years ago too, mm-hmm. uh, three years ago, just for fun. Mm-hmm. So I guess there it kind of predicted what's going to happen. And um yeah, so that's for the reason why I started doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning, it was just fun, mm-hmm. you know, like just fun doing it. But slowly I saw also that um, I learned a lot from it. Right. Like I learned a lot, lot, lot from it. And uh, it inspires me a lot from my own works. So, um, uh, you know, I research a lot about those animals too when I do that. Um mm-hmm. I read scientific articles about the sound they do, they make, uh, what's known out there. Mm. And 
yeah, it's it's fascinating, you know. So, and the next step to your to your question about how you do that or how am I listening to? I mean, there's so sometimes so many subtle details, subtleties mm. in this sound so that it's impossible to hear the first time or even at full speed. So I do have a program called Audacity here, and um, I do slow those recordings down sometimes and then focus really like on everything that's there or everything that I can perceive. So that's why the scores <laughs> looked really complicated then because I tried to be meticulously, mm-hmm. um, meticulously write down everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought that's it too, but then there are other kind of elements that came into, um, into play too, because when I read about nightingales, you know, Berlin is the city, um, that has the most nightingales in Germany. Really? Yeah, more than any other place. And I grew up with those animals, you know, listening to them in the early morning and in the evening. And I didn't know that they spent half the year in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, like, so I was just like, wow, from West Africa to Uganda, uh, these animals spent half the year there. And um, so it creates connections too. You know, that's mm-hmm. nice. Like presumably with maybe cultures, I don't think I have anything in common. We actually have this, as you said, you know, the element earth or mm-hmm. like nature um, in common. We do share the sounds of nightingales like together. And if that's not the most basic or the most uh, true connection there is, mm-hmm. then I don't know. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I did not know that about the nightingales. So, yeah, I mean, so you do on your Instagram posts when you write about, say, a particular bird, like a warbler or something, you'll you'll add some information about these creatures. But you said you've learned a lot and it's influenced your own music. Tell tell me a little bit about some of the stuff you've learned and how it's influenced your own music. Well, um, there are two aspects. First, like um, to see what's possible. Out, out there, you know, like uh, whale songs, uh, what the frequency range is, um, that birds whistle to pitches that are much higher than um, the, what the piano is uh, even able to produce. Um, but then also some gestures, you know, that are, I mean, it's, it sounds a bit uh, funny, but I've noticed a lot of um, similarities with also music that there's around. I mean, in this Nightingale, I transcribed suddenly, I hear the theme from La Valls in Ravel. I was just like, okay, that's just there. Then I hear mm-hmm. uh, this Urapuru, this uh, bird native to the Amazon forest, who actually sings in what it seems to be the tempo or the rhythms of samba. And I mean, like, come on, that's like, okay, I know samba is, the history of samba is more complex than that, but it's still funny, right? How come? Yeah, you said that native uh, that Indians or Native Americans, you know, know what they they're very close to nature. And I mean, several cultures have um, credited the origins of music 
with uh, to animals. So, mm. I mean, there you go. Mm. Um, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is just that uh, I tried to pick some motivic cell units of those animals sometimes, and I did two pieces uh, based on the animals I transcribed them. Which which piece, which pieces are these? So I wrote a flute solo piece based on that Uirapuru. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote an oboe solo piece um, based on a bird that is extinct now. Okay. So, so interesting. Yeah, so, so. I mean, with your stuff, you just, you have to look at it. It's funny, um, like, to listen to it, but look at the score at the same time. There is, um, oh, what's it called? It's gone out of my mind. Hilary Hahn often plays it. English composer. What's his name? Oh, Vaughan Williams. Vaughan Williams. That's it. The Lark Ascending. That's it. Yeah, yeah. But when you, when you listen to it, the way she's playing violin, it really sounds like a bird going in and out of the water and coming out. Um, and it sounds, to me, it sounds like morning. It sounds like... I don't know if you've ever been to like the English countryside. No. Well, the English countryside is sort of these sort of rolling green hills. To me, I can hear it in the music, but but I, I love the music so much that I bought the score so I could follow it. Wow, yeah. Um, because sometimes it's, for me, if I'm listening to something, sometimes I want to try and understand what somebody's doing and seeing it helps me to understand what they're doing. In the same way, what you have written with the, with the animals singing or making their sounds, seeing it helps me understand. Isn't it amazing then? Like, uh, I mean, I, I can see also from all the comments written there sometimes that people... Right, you know, I'll never be listening the same way to birds songs, something. I was like, wow, you know, that's so great. Absolutely. Um, that like inspires people too. Uh, and also, um, you know, I've never thought I could inspire like other composers too. But um, I think one of the most amazing messages I ever received was like uh, a student somewhere in the US who wrote his final orchestral work based on all the animal sounds I transcribed. Wow. And then I was just like, wow, this is, this is like big, you know, this is, this is huge. Wow. Um, that's amazing. But I think that's, isn't that the beauty of music and the beauty of art is that we have this way of, it, it connects us in a way that we don't, we don't always understand, mm. but it really is like a universal Kind, you know, kind of language. I mean, it's the reason I discovered you. I was like, how is this person doing this? This is amazing. I've got, I've got to talk to this person, you know. That's music connecting us, you know. No, you're right. It's a very mystified art, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't understand fully or even grasp, you know, the idea how it can move us. Like, there's so many factors into play. So um, there's still some, you know, um, questions whether what animals produce is really music or not. Mm. So it's a very, I have to be careful there what I'm mm. saying. Um, but yeah, you know, because the definition of music doesn't really apply to what this is doing, if there's a purpose and so forth. Anyway, it's very complex, but mm. um, yeah, a lot of music is inspired at least from those mm. uh, nature sounds. So 
Yeah. So what do you, I mean, I've never thought of what the definition of music is. With, I mean, I'd like to know your opinion. I'm sure loads of people have written about it and it's all very, academics often make things very complicated. Uh, no, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> but what's your definition of music? Well, you know, like if you look, I, I have also to be very careful what I'm saying here. It's recorded. <laughs> <laughs> like um, the definition of music is just um, a following of notes, arranged notes that make sense. Okay. Yeah, like so a purposely arranged notes. Um, you can listen to um, music that doesn't sound, that sounds random to you, but I really carefully, meticulously put them together. So it's music. And we don't, we simply don't know if that's the case for 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 animals, right? Or not. So I guess that's only one possible definition for music. But I, th- I see you're looking it up. Yes, no, no, no. What I'm looking up, I just because you 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 were talking about music that's sort of arranged in a certain way, and I was thinking of, I could, I was trying to think of atonal composers. Yeah, exactly. Like Schoenberg. So Schoenberg was the first. I was like, who? Because I don't like atonal music at all. Really? Oh, I can't. I can't connect. I don't like it. Well, you, well, look, there you go. Like, you can listen to those bird songs, mm-hmm. and they sound like like random notes hopping mm-hmm. around, half noise, half pitch. You don't mm-hmm. know what's coming next, mm-hmm. and there you love it. Yeah. But then you listen to random noises on an oboe or on a on a flute, or presu- seemingly random notes, uh-huh. and you don't like it. So tell me why. <laughs> Well, and this, but this is what I was going to say in response to what you're saying. If it's like you said notes sort of one after the other, I guess, that have a purpose. But the thing is, for me, music is so subjective. So something can be music on one hand, but I might not like it on another hand. That doesn't mean it's not music. It just means I don't like it, you know? Yeah. Um, but But I wonder whether, like, the people that decide what music is, I just feel it perhaps maybe the better way because human beings we we need to find words to explain things we need to understand things but perhaps we don't always need to understand and for me i just think there is sound everywhere so for me music is kind of sound in some kind of order i to be honest i've never thought of it but it's sound in some kind of order so I'm sure birds aren't going around saying, are we making music to each other? That's not, they're not thinking like that. Yeah. It's their communication. It's whatever they're doing. But my question, I don't know. I'm like, does it matter? To me, it's music. And does I, I'm not the arbiter of explaining what music is to everybody else. It's just something that I like the sound of, if that makes sense. Yeah, that I guess that makes sense. Because you were saying you were earlier, you were saying it's it's imp- you have to be careful to um, to say that animal sounds are music. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. You see, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I'm like, but does it matter if you think it's music? Then it's music, or if you don't think it, do you, do you see what I mean? So you, you apply your own definition of music right. to the expert. I mean, that's that's fine with me. You know, like also, why would I need to agree with some person wrote in the dictionary about music? Yeah. So. Okay, so if you if you feel something, if for you that's you know you can groove to it, I don't know what your definition is, but um, that's fine with me. Mm. Um, yeah, you know we all agree on the definition of words too, though, and for so um, yeah, I wonder actually it's interesting if different cultures have different meanings for uh, definitions for music. 
Um, mm. That would be an interesting research. I, I wonder maybe if instead of understanding what, what if something is music or not, it's what is the purpose of it? I'd like, I think um, there's a group, I think they're in Cameroon, this, this group called the, the Baka people. And they make music for everything. So they'll drum the water and that has, that's got a particular sound. They'll sing to children when they go to sleep. It's like lots of poly, polyphonic music. When they're going into the jungle to hunt some animals, they'll sing for that. When they've caught something, they'll sing for that. They, they have songs for every single situation almost a way of narrating their lives. Mm. Um, and I wonder, but, but I say that to say, to me, this is from my own understanding. I'm sure someone, of course, understands this far better than I do. But what I see with them is that their music, the, the sounds that they're creating has a purpose. Mm. And the purposes change depending on the situation. And maybe it's about, well, what's the purpose of all of this sounds that we're making? Yeah. Um, that's also a big, a big chapter, you know, when you say music used or uh, music as a purpose, mm. or is music just music, music mm. as such? Mm -hmm. So music and music as entertainment, music mm -hmm. as uh, or music just as such. So as you mm. can see, sometimes in some of the classical repertoire when you have a symphony and that's just about the, the music to music quoting itself. So mm -hmm. you really are in your own bubble music. We're getting into fields too, where I don't, where I'm not an expert, mm -hmm. where I can say what I think, but uh, yeah, as you said, there are people probably knowing much better what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, 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 I'm literally just responding to some of the things you have said. So I've, I don't think I've ever even thought about yeah. it. But, it's but just I really think that's, that's, you know, that's um, these transcriptions just also that they are able to bring up those questions is the most important thing, I believe, you know, that yeah. um, you start thinking about what is music. And, you know, I've, I, I see those comments that I receive sometimes, and it's really about that. Like, so many have written, uh, this is like contemporary music, like mm -hmm. the contemporary music. And I'm like, like, yeah, is it, is it the mm -hmm. same? You know, as I said before, you probably don't really like that as much. So the contemporary music mm -hmm. as the bird songs, but why, what's the real difference? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think just that it's, you know, enables a person to think is already the most important thing. Absolutely. You know, to have a critical thinking about, um, about them. As I record this, the world is watching the unfolding destruction of the nation of Afghanistan, the collapse of the Afghan government, the takeover of the Taliban, the undoing of 20 years of work trying to rebuild an already fragile nation, borders to other nations closed so that only the rich can leave, and Biden's decision to withdraw US troops from Afghanistan. You may have heard me talk about the fact that I trained in human rights law, and particularly in international law. And one of the things you learn is that the role of human rights is to enshrine in law pre-existing principles as truth. For example, because we all are part of the human race, we are all equal and all have inherent dignity and value. 
The law is then designed to uphold this truth and provide protection and recourse for people when these values are undermined. Article 3 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights states, I quote, Everyone has the right to life, liberty and security of person. What we know in reality, however, is that whilst these values may be true, every day, all around the world, we see them eroded. As I record this from the safety of my own home, I have no idea what it must feel like for the Afghan people. It's always easy to talk about things in abstract, intellectual terms, but these are real people with real lives, parents with real hopes and dreams for their children, who are literally running for their lives. In the midst of this humanitarian crisis, some are stepping up to offer their support to Afghan refugees. Airbnb.org has committed to offering free temporary housing to 20,000 Afghan refugees worldwide, the cost of which is funded through contributions to Airbnb.org from Airbnb and its co-founder, Brian Chesky, as well as donors to the Airbnb.org Refugee Fund. The announcement builds on Airbnb.org's work in this area with the creation of a $25 million refugee fund earlier this year. The fund serves to support refugees and asylum seekers worldwide, starting with programs run by non-profit partner organizations in the US and Central and South America. To find out how you can host a refugee through Airbnb.org, or maybe you can't be a host but you want to support housing for Afghan refugees, you can donate to airbnb.org forward slash refugees. All details are in the podcast blurb. British Somali poet Warsan Shire has a beautiful poem called Home. You may have read quotes from it here and there. I'm going to read a few excerpts from it because she encapsulates the terror and the torment of the loss of home in such visceral language, but I recommend reading the whole thing. No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbours running faster than you, breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory is holding a gun bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains, beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck, feeding on newspaper unless the miles travelled means something more than the journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. So back to to also the, some of the other music you've written. I, I've noticed a theme, and you know, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there is like a theme around climate, the earth. You have Erwachen, yeah, about awakening. Yeah, I'm. I'm. The tag says, "In a not too distant future, a girl living in a megalopolis manages to realize the dramatic consequences of a, her ancestors' indifference to climate change." Yes. Tell me about that. So um, I was commissioned by the Deutsche Oper to write a, a piece for them. And so 
I decided to write a piece uh, on climate change. Um, so I, I don't I don't want it to be dark and somber, but you know, hopeful. So I kind of based the music on that too. So yeah, I wrote my own text, the text, so that's good. And it's for yeah, quintet plus soprano. Mm. And, uh, you know, so she she basically walks down a street and discovers what the future really looks like. Um, and it's 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 a very uh, horrendous sight. And um, she describes all the worst results climate change can have. Mm-hmm. And but in the end, she wakes up. So basically, she was dreaming. So there's hope. It's time to like. So it's 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 a hopeful piece. Not mm-hmm. like sometimes I'm get, I get a little bit um, frustrated by all the pieces or all the people working for you know um, or for the purpose of climate change. Yeah. And then I always you know you have to do that. Please give us money. Do that. It's horrible and so forth. And I I don't know. I'm a I was blessed with a high level of uh, dopamine and endorphins. <laughs> uh, so I'm an optimistic person. And I think it's always the best way to reach people too. You know, if you say it's it's hopeful, there's changes still possible and so forth. Mm. So, yeah. So are you, um, but I, I guess it seems like quite a few people commission you to write music, but is there like a, an underlying intention for you to talk about climate change or it just so happens that people are coming to you saying, would you write? So, cause you also did Anthropocene. Yeah. Welcome uh, yeah. to the Anthropocene. Yeah. No, actually like I got um, very involved in all, you know, all that matter, like climate change and, um, when I read uh, Elizabeth Colbert's uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, The Sixth Extinction, okay. it was really an eye-opening experience. And I really recommend it to everyone who mm-hmm. hasn't read it. Yeah, it's a it's a great book. And um, she writes, she's extremely eloquent and writes mm-hmm. super well. And I just read this book in, in two days. And uh, wow. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking all the time about reading it another time. And I mean, like, really reading, you know, not just mm-hmm. like skipping on. I was really involved. And um, yeah, then I decided, you know, I also have to do something. And that's it. So these two pieces are the results of that. Okay. Too. And in some way, I believe that those animal transcriptions are too, mm. you know, not in the beginning when it was fun, but afterwards said like, you know, it, it's also part of the mission, you know, when you, when you show birds or animals that can be, you know, um, endangered from extinction, that's a way to bring the attention to those animals as well, or to, yeah, to different species. I I absolutely agree, and I think um, art or the arts 
it's a way to draw attention in a way like you said you 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 you're an optimistic person and so you want to raise attention in in different ways you know because i think sometimes I, it, it feels like the world is so full of bad news but at the same time we have we i think we have a kind of social responsibility to to not make i either to do something about it or not make the problems worse <laughs> so um sometimes i think you know the way arts can draw attention to things is really important absolutely but sometimes even in art and uh, it's the topic is very dark and it ends on a very sad note or horrible you know and that i i don't know i try to make it a little bit more optimistic yeah i mean there are studies who prove that children learn much better when they laugh you know and um maybe we should all just learn from that too like maybe we learn more if we actually spend a good time or have you know positive vibes around so yeah that's that's true i i have a a close friend of mine who runs laughter courses to help with um like people who are you know feeling trauma or you know like in response to certain life situations and she, they have three times a week people just get together and laugh <laughs> wow I, I, what as are they telling jokes or no how do, they... how do they do it um they sort of they come together and um they just start laughing so there might be a theme and it's like half an hour Like, and you know what happens to the body when you laugh and all the sort of yeah. hormones that are released um and yeah and she's been doing it and she's like the results are incredible there was somebody who was taking chemo i think and all the side effects went wow from, yeah 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 just from just laughing every you know like, and being intentional because sometimes it feels a bit strange to just start laughing yeah especially out of out of nowhere yeah 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 But apparently it's like the more you do it, the more you just, the laughter just starts and it just naturally, it just, it becomes real. Like sometimes you've got to sort of pretend yeah, yeah. and then you, yeah. And like incredible results. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But um, so maybe that's, that's one of the keys, you know, to really make people change something or. I, to be honest, I didn't expect it also to be like such a thing on social media when I do this, you know, I, I, the beginning was, as I said, just fun. And over the month, it just developed to be something a little bit bigger. And I see that people really take uh, good vibes from that. Mm. So um, great. I guess it's a win-win-win situation. And it's yeah. really beautiful. You know, the one that, that I love the most, maybe is the seal also because the seal looks like it's smiling. Yeah, it's just so cute. cute but the whole thing you're just like oh the music the seal how he wrote and you know when they make those sort of sounds that aren't notes that you sort of do the you know you put the cross on the actual note because it's a more rhythmic yeah. it's a sound rather than a note that you can pitch it's more pitch. like a noise yeah yes um, exactly it's just i find it very soothing but it's also mesmerizing and surprising and all of that has some kind of positive response you know Yeah, no, no, absolutely. But you know, when you, I take all those videos, I have to say, I did, I'm, I didn't take those videos, mm -hmm. all of them. Huh? So yeah. um, I, I took them from people who uploaded them on, on YouTube mm -hmm. or on Instagram. So, and this is always the most complicated part of it. It's to find, you know, a good 
video or like yeah. something that I think is also worth uh, working with mm -hmm. on. I like to ask all my guests what lessons they have learned that we can learn from. Are there any lessons that you are, have learned or are learning that you'd like to share with us? I mean, for the related to the animal transcriptions it's or up to in you. general? It's up to you. Well, I guess concerning the animal transcriptions, in the beginning, I was applying too much um, the classical rules of music. On, on them, like basically I was using time signatures, you know, bar lines and so forth. And um, the more I research and also how to do transcriptions based on nature, I see that, you know, I take away all the time signatures. I took away all the bar lines um, because, yeah, animal just don't think in, mm. <laughs> you know, in keys or time signature. Mm. Um, yeah. And then generally, I guess I used to have very strong opinions on on different music genres on compositions i didn't like and was just like yeah this is like that, that but yeah the more i read and learned i just you know sometimes critique is very easy but art is difficult so yeah. uh sometimes we tend to criticize very easily and one did not even take the time to read about it first mm -hmm. so I've learned some lessons that's, there. That's such a good one. Critique is very easy, but art is difficult. I think that's so, that's such a good statement and it's so true. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're a musician, you watch other musicians and you've obviously been to music school. I, I went to music school, not to the level you did, but I know other musicians sit there critiquing other musicians. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough, it, it's yeah. a very, very tough. So it's a very tough place to be in. Um, but then what it can do is that it robs, I, I just think music should be joyful. It's such a beautiful. Exactly. Um, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yes. And that's, that's something I also like always say, like most of the time, especially in classical music, we tend to be more on the technical aspect or putting more attention on the technical aspects on how virtuosic a person is technically speaking. Mm. But, you know, I've been to a lot of performance, obviously, but sometimes I, I preferred uh, listening uh, to a student that really had something to say and that wasn't technically perfect than a, than a very uh, famous violinist you know it's mm. it, sometimes you connect differently sometimes the person expresses and has something to say that connects with you mm. and um so it doesn't matter that he's technically perfect or much better than the other one or mm. yeah you know as long as you feel something when you go to a concert can be anything i think you already won as a performer mm. you know what i mean like you go there and the person really you move someone can be short, but that's it. Mm. There was a meaning for your for your visit. It was like, you know, you don't just sit there, sit there and like sterile, but like 
no feelings. Mm, so. Yeah, and I, it comes back to my point about well, what's the purpose of all of this? And I think music is to be enjoyed. Um, I mean, the dream is that someone is technically incredible and also moves you as well, you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, these are the probably the great performers the yeah. greatest, you know, like, absolutely. But um, for me, I'm just... I, I I just, I love music and I love all of it. Even the stuff that I don't like, I still am intrigued about how somebody does something or how they made it. But I suppose the things I connect to most, I always say is music that has soul. And I don't mean the genre soul. I mean, like what mm -hmm. you're saying when you see a student musician that is playing with their heart. Like I always... I find, for example, my favorite Chopin players are people like Ashkenazi, people who were from Poland, who grew up in Poland. So there's something they seem to connect with the sound of that place. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there are fantastic Chopin players everywhere, but in terms of feeling, or Rubenstein, I also, Arthur Ruben, I love, love, love their interpretation because I feel like I'm connecting with the soul of the player. Yeah, yeah, of course, that makes it make sense. Uh, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So my last question. Well, actually, I've got two questions for you. So you're doing <laughs> your, your thesis after you finish your thesis, which is going to be, I mean, it's, it's like having a baby. I know lots of friends who have done like doctorates and it's a huge undertaking. But what's next for you after that? What, what, what are your plans? Well, that's uh, the big question. So, you know, I'm still a student in the US. So mm -hmm. I don't have a green card or anything. So I don't know if I will stay there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I let's see. Then the, the big job hunt starts, I guess. Mm. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm open to any places that are willing to have me. So... Oh. Many places, I'm sure. I'm sure you're so, like well, I say. I hope you're right. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Well, like I say, I think the thing that struck me most about you is how brilliant you are across disciplines. Because it's really hard to do all the things you do. Um, so so some, someone's going to see you somewhere. I wish my teacher could hear you. He, my, he would be very proud. Uh, <laughs> he would say like, yeah, he always used to say like, Technique is everything. You need to know how to write for, for, for every instrument, for every genre and stuff. Mm. I cannot do every, everything. Believe me, I cannot. Well, you, you can definitely do a lot. From what I've seen, you can definitely do a lot. And this, this is recorded so you can play it back to him. Uh, yes. And go, see? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, now my last question. What music are you listening to? Uh, well, that's, oh, you know, I listen to everything that's, uh, that's well done. Uh -huh. oh, that's, I, I always, I always say that because um, I don't really like that question normally, you know, uh -huh. when people say, what genre do you listen to? Or what's a genre? And I, I don't have a genre. My genre is yeah, everything that makes me feel something, you know? Yeah. And so there's everything, the best of classical music, the best of rock, pop. I love Michael Jackson, you know, mm -hmm. I love Michael Jackson music. Um, with my brother, I, I listen to metal music mm -hmm. in the south of France, driving. It's like always metal. And um, yeah, folk, crossover, jazz. Like uh, one of my best friends is a, is a jazz uh, player. So 
saxophone. I went mm-hmm. to a lot of concerts and I just love it. So yeah, I don't have a, a genre. And yeah. right now what I'm listening to, mm. right now, obviously a lot of Schuhoff for my dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's not so well known and he's one of the great composers of the 20th century. I, I'm standing to my word there. Yeah. Um, so maybe people should listen to the, to the hot sonata he wrote for saxophone and piano. Okay. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, and you will see like, you know, he brought, he is one of the person, the first composers, Western classical music composers to have brought jazz elements into the classical world. So, um, yeah, so you will listen to a mixture there of jazz in classical music style. It's actually pretty interesting. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to discovering this because, yeah, I've never heard him before. Four movements. I think you you can pick any of those movements because they're all great. Fantastic. I think the second or third is, is particularly nice. Brilliant. Well, Alexander Lieberman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you for, for having me. It's it great. Fun. And all the best with everything. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I <laughs> thank you. Yeah, and to you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Alexander Lieberman. Do check out his incredible animal transcriptions. I've added some links, but you can go to his Instagram or YouTube page to see more. They are amazing. Do also check out his varied compositions. He really is an all-round composer. All details are in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb. Next week is the season finale. Time really flies. I'll be speaking to a return guest from season two, artist Makoto Fujimura. This time he joins me with his wife, lawyer Haijin Shim. We have a powerful conversation about art, beauty and justice. And, and when we do that, I think that's when, um, you know, lawyers like myself become an artist, right? Mm-hmm. You're making beauty out of this business yeah. relationship that we never thought of. But, yeah. um, you know, it sounds extravagant, 
but beauty is about extravagance. There you go. And we are so drawn to it. You know, like, why are we so drawn to beautiful things? Because we are, our core craves it. The connection between beauty and love and justice is made very clear in what Helen just said. Um, If we have a transactional model, uh, assumption of scarcity model, which is basically a Darwinian model, Mm-hmm. Um, of limited resource environments and, you know, people vying for whatever they can get out of the relationship. Somebody wins, then somebody loses. Now, that that is a typical assumption uh, we make in everything, with politics to economics. But is that true? You know, they, all, all the artists are asking that, you know, that question. Is this, is this the only way? Until next time.